What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Hello, everybody. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Absolutely delighted to be welcoming our guest here today, Keenan Weirbeck, the founder and CTO of Zipline. Keenan, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Keenan, we're just so delighted to have you here today. Your company is working on such critical and interesting problems and doing so at a global scale. And I'd love to get into that story. First, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about yourself with our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So career-wise, I come from a weird mix of product and design background, as well as robotics. And I've kind of gone back and forth between those two worlds in many different worlds of product design, everything from ed tech to sports bras, and on the other side from robots for doing surgery inside of MRI fields to what I do at Zipline. Really, really interesting. And can you talk to us about Zipline? Tell us about your company's mission. Yeah. So Zipline is, you know, our, our mission is to make all vital medical supplies available to anyone, no matter where you live, available on demand. So you have what you need when you need it. Yeah, I've got so many ways to talk about the mission that's applied that I'm so excited about. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's really what we do. We, and we do this by drone. Basically, where we can fly over the traffic, we can fly over missing roads, any missing infrastructure. So no matter where you are, we can get you those medical supplies when you need them. That's sort of in a nutshell, sort of why we do it and how. And Keenan, you're headquartered in California. You produce your drones in California. You do a lot of test flights around Davis, California. But a lot of your operations for the first several years of the company's life cycle were actually in Africa. Can you talk to us a little bit about that decision and, and why you decided to focus on that part of the world? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's really why we started the company. I've been looking for something to start that I really believe would have a meaningful impact and that we could scale. I've worked on lots mm -hmm. of things that I'm really excited about the impact, but we never figured out how to scale them at all, right? There was just no practical way to do it or vice versa. Lots of scale mm -hmm. didn't really matter. <laughs> and so followed advice that I got from one of my favorite professors at Stanford, which was go get out in the world and find real human users for a problem that really matters to them before you do a lick of technology. I heard that advice, advice before, but I've never actually followed it. <laughs> and with Zipline, we really did that. And my, my wife's an epidemiologist and my co-founder's family is in public health. And they, one of the many things we looked at was what they needed us to look at, which is, hey, go look at these vaccine campaigns and these other health interventions. Just get stuck on logistics. So we did. Spent a bunch of time in Central America, Africa, really just talking to anybody who would listen to us, like literally anybody who would listen to us, doctors, people in the supply chain. And very quickly, we got meetings with the presidents of countries. And, you know, from there, sort of the rest was history. That was the poll we were looking for. The, the users really wanted this. It was a big problem for them. And then we got started with the technology and those relationships we built became our first customers. The story really begins in Rwanda and Ghana. And y'all at this point have delivered hundreds of thousands of 
Yeah, we just hit a, we hit a quarter million deliveries. A quarter yeah. million. And we're talking about life-saving blood and medical supplies to hospitals, to health facilities, even to end patients. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it all started with blood to hospitals. It all started with one hospital in Rwanda that we were delivering blood to just to like literally show that it worked at all. And this is, blood is a really complex sort of product, right? It's short shelf life. There's many different blood types. There's blood itself is split into red blood cells and plasma and platelets and cryoprecipitate. And so, and all of these have different uses and they all have very short shelf lives, right? Some of them last only seven days. The time of donation to expiring. So it's very difficult to manage, which is why we started with blood. And Mm. so we started in Rwanda just doing blood, eventually delivered to all the hospitals outside of the main city of Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, eventually started adding vaccines, doing vaccine delivery, and then various pharmaceuticals, sort of everything you'd imagine from over-the-counter to prescription kind of things, and working our way from hospitals and then health clinics, and now more Mm -hmm. recently, patient homes as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait, why did you start with blood if that was the most difficult shipment to make? Like, Why didn't you kind of get your training wheels on and (laughs) build up from there? (laughs) Yeah. So you can think of blood as like, it's the most valuable thing we do. When I say that, there's a few things about that. So blood is very expensive. And we often think of blood as free. It's like a donated thing. So why would it be expensive? It is phenomenally expensive. In this country, it costs anywhere from $500 to $1,000 per unit of blood. And you've seen like, these Mm. are not, this is not a lot of blood. Most Mm -hmm. surgeries and accidents require many units of blood. In Rwanda, it's a few hundred dollars per unit. And that's the cost to run the collection and do the testing and typing and transport and all of that logistics to run blood. And so if you have to, if you do all that, and then you have to guess which hospitals will need what blood, and inevitably a bunch of it expires on the shelf, a bunch of that money literally just like disappears. Mm. Phenomenally expensive. And everywhere in the world, blood is a rare resource. You always need more of it than you have. So every, not only is it expensive to throw away blood when it expires, but there was someone else somewhere in that country who could have used that blood and Mm -hmm. improved their health outcome. So in both of these ways, it's like this really visceral problem. uh, And it's very, very hard to solve with any other solution. So uh, value is like the business way of answering your question, why we started with blood. The other way, Mm -hmm. the more concrete way of answering that question is it's what our customers said we like they want us to start with was like, this was their biggest problem uh, and what they wanted to, to do this first with. You have to remember back Mm -hmm. then, this was crazy. Like the fact that a government actually have ever worked with us in some ways in hindsight is like bonkers, right? They shouldn't have done that. We were a random little startup in California with nothing to show. But like the fact that this was such a big problem to them that they were willing to bet on a startup company to solve it for them. That was the value we were looking for. We wanted to focus on something that really mattered to them. Really important. (laughs) I love to hear the energy in your voice. And it's so clear that you find what you do so inspiring. And I'd love for you to bring that home for us. Are there a couple of use cases that you think about all the time, like people who received a delivery from Zipline, and it made an enormous difference in their lives? Yeah, yeah. It's Well, yeah, so many stories. Let's see, what's a good one? A good story to share. I think the I'll share one from actually before we started operating, which is, I was in a hospital. And this is when we're trying to learn just about you know, whether this is something we could make a difference with. While we were there, there was a woman giving childbirth. And one of the most common reasons you need blood transfusions is from mm. basically postpartum hemorrhage, blood bleeding during childbirth. That's the most common reason in Rwanda, same as here in the US. And so this woman was bleeding and they did not have her blood type. And literally, they come out to the waiting room. There's some family members there. <laughs> they come mm. up with a, to the waiting room with a cooler and a piece of paper. Mm. And they say, "Hey, we think the you're you know this you know 
it was your sister-in-law. You think your sister-in-law's blood type is at this hospital far away. Hurry back. <laughs> and literally like that family member got in a car, started driving and they ended up coming back too late. It took them almost 12 hours round trip to make that, to get back with that blood. And unfortunately that woman, that woman passed away. That was one of those really like, it just, you, you look at something and it just, it's just not the way it's just totally wrong. Right. Like I can't even imagine like, like the, the intensity of, of that person's experience, how awful they felt to come back and have not coming back fast enough. It's just a terrible way to solve a problem. I always think of that woman and that brother-in-law who went and tried to make that trip in a hurry with that cooler. Yeah, there's another there's another great story that, that I love. This woman named Alice at our first distribution center in Rwanda, she actually got delivered blood in a life-saving situation two times by Zipline. And she actually came to visit mm. us after the second one to be like, what is this Zipline? Zip Who are you? Yeah. The, the first time was you know, transfusion due to uh, anemia, which is a common sort of side effect of malaria. And needed an emergency transfusion, and we delivered the blood for that procedure. And then a year later, she was giving birth. And it's the same situation. She started, she developed postpartum hemorrhaging, needed blood in a hurry, uh, and we delivered for her as well. And it was one of those really, it was just really cool to for someone who had just not, know nothing about what we're doing just to come knock on the door and say, hey, like, I really want to see what this is. Because it sounded crazy when they told me how the blood got delivered. And I wanted to check it out. Oh, that's so amazing. And, you know, being able to look into someone else's eyes and see the value that you're creating and the impact that you're having, that must have been a really neat moment for the whole team. So I lived in Africa for a year and I've traveled there quite a bit and have an appreciation for how complicated that environment is for delivery again of some of these life-saving healthcare supplies But you all have also started working closer to home. You recently announced a partnership with Walmart in Arkansas. And I'd love for you to share more about this because it's not just that Zipline is saving lives in Africa. You all are really starting to play a major role closer to home as well. Yeah, this is really exciting. So we just started doing deliveries in Arkansas from a Walmart facility. And we started with their health and wellness products, which is to them sort of everything you get in a CVS, right? The over-the-counter stuff and other things. And it really fits into this like transformation in healthcare. That's not something I was really aware of before getting involved with Zipline. So every country has this really big existential challenge, which is how do you increase the quality of healthcare while reducing costs, right? Sounds easy to mm-hmm. say, right? <laughs> but, um, Rwanda has this challenge in spades. In the United States, we have this challenge in spades, as I think everybody here is aware. <laughs> like our, mm-hmm. We spend more per capita on healthcare than anybody. And most of the things that you do to improve healthcare quality, you know, quality of health outcomes, almost everything you can do increases costs <laughs> uh, and doesn't decrease costs, except for really one thing, which is all about preventative healthcare. And the way we think about that is basically keep people out of the hospitals, away from the doctor and healthy at home. That can increase healthcare across pretty much every healthcare condition <laughs> while reducing costs. And so we think of Zipline as like the physical side of that equation. To give some examples of what we're doing here in the U.S., so with Walmart, it's simple delivery. So you might have a telehealth appointment, your doctor prescribes something, we can deliver it, you never have to leave your house, which depending on what you're sick with or your physical ability to drive or and so on, that can be a really big deal to just, well, helping you actually follow the healthcare plan your doctor put together with you. And then there's other stuff we're doing with health networks here in the U.S., which is being the delivery side of their home healthcare programs, where they actually have traveling nurses, traveling doctors going into homes. And of course, they bring what they think they're going to need. But what they tell us over and over again as a traveling nurse and traveling doctor, when you walk into a patient's home, there's 10 things that surprise you. 
And if you can then just while you're there within minutes, just get delivered what you would need to fix those other issues, you can really help keep people out of hospitals, basically, which is great for healthcare quality and great for saving money. This is so fascinating to me. And it's not only great for the end consumer, it's also great for Walmart. You're turning Walmart's sort of retail footprint into a really strategic advantage in terms of being able to reach their customers where they are in a timely way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's magical for the customer. But yeah, for Walmart, it's huge, right? They're very excited that they have their retail footprint is within 10 miles of 90% of the people who live in the U.S., but there's that whole other 10%. <laughs> and, and our delivery system goes 50 miles. And so we get nearly all the rest of the folks basically in range. And that's a really big deal. Walmart is, is really passionate about it. And then, like they really take seriously their mission to serve everyone in the United States, including rural folks. And so no matter where you live, you have that on-demand access that, that works for you. It really, it's such an important development for folks in our rural communities. I grew up in rural Vermont. And Having to drive 30 or 45 minutes or longer to go see your healthcare professional really is a barrier to staying healthy. And it's amazing to see you all fill that gap. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing that we're also starting to realize with is how expensive it is to drive, right? In every sense yes. of the word. Environmental impact is high. It's, the gas is expensive. It takes a lot of your yes. time. Yes. All of these things add up a lot. And I think the, we don't talk much about this because it's just not our focus at Zipline. If you were to do that drive in an electric car, like a Tesla, versus we deliver with one of our drones, we cut the amount of energy you would need for an electric car versus a drone by 20x. What? 20x Stop less. It. Yeah. It's a That's huge amazing, reduction Eden. in impact. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love businesses that are wins all the way around for everybody. And Zipline is one. That's so cool. Keenan, and then even more up to date. So there are these ongoing healthcare needs. We will always need to have blood delivered. We'll always need to have various medicines delivered in an emergency and other situations. We're also still in the middle of this global COVID pandemic. And yeah. y'all recently announced a partnership with our vaccine producers to deliver yeah. vaccines, I think 50,000 vaccines in Ghana. Will you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that's really complicated, yeah. right? There are all kinds of restrictions that you all have to be mindful of as you're delivering these vaccines. Yeah, totally. So we've done over half a million vaccine doses and COVID vaccine half doses in million. Ghana. But we've done millions of non-COVID vaccine doses. So we've been doing vaccines yes. for a while. So we got yeah. some practice at some of the hard parts. And the hard parts mm. of vaccine really come down to really cold chain, like keeping the yeah. vaccines in the right temperature range so that they're still good when you need them which is a really big deal. I thought that was the main reason we would do vaccines was cold chain. Because mm. in order for like your local doctor's office to be able to give a vaccine to your kid at their two-year-old birthday, they have to have the right freezers and refrigerators for the different vaccines with different temperature requirements. And by delivering on demand, we literally eliminate that. Almost all vaccines don't need refrigeration for a day or two at all. It's just mm. if you need to store them for more than, you know, more than that. Uh, so we can deliver on demand and you can get rid of all the need to maintain those fridges and and freezers, which is a huge deal in places in the world without reliable electricity and, and things like right. that. But it turns out, like, really, it was looking at COVID, there, there's a whole other layer to it, which is around really how flexible the supply chain is. And I describe it this way. You know, my grandmother lives here. When COVID vaccine was available for her, 
I spent you know better part of a couple of weeks trying to figure out how to get her an appointment. And then, of course, go get her and bring her to that appointment with the max vaccination site. It was pretty goofy. It was like, there was no way she was going to do that on her own. Right? There's no way. Versus what happens in Ghana, where we deliver COVID vaccines. We get the vaccine. We deliver them directly to primary healthcare clinics. Those clinics, of course, have existing relationships with all their patients. We call up the patients who are eligible. They come in, get their vaccine. It's exactly what you want. <laughs> and it, it, we can do that because we, we can do this so sort of responsively, right? These health clinics, they, they know the ages of their patients. They know exactly how many doses they need. We deliver it to them. And so every time we've gotten doses to deliver, you know, we're literally delivering those doses within a few days to all hundreds and hundreds of health clinics and exactly the right number of doses per clinic so that mm. they can target the age, the patient population age that they have next on the queue. So Keenan, you said your wife is an epidemiologist. She's originally from Costa Rica and you traveled in Costa Rica with her and you sort of had this epiphany that the Costa Rican healthcare system is fabulous. Like you described it as extremely well run and like great healthcare outcomes and stuff. What did you learn that surprised you given the amount of investment that the United States makes per capita for the healthcare that we have versus what you saw in Costa Rica or elsewhere? And are any of those innovations things that you think are possible for us to introduce at home? It's a great question. I think the core of the Costa Rican health system is basically a community health clinic. They call it Mm -hmm. Evites, which is a community health clinic. It serves a, a patient population that's small enough that doctor they know their patients, right? It's very tight sort of connection between what's going on in the community and the doctor who's serving that community. Now, of course, they have other layers in the healthcare system all the way up to the central hospitals and so on. But how well run those health clinics are, the quality of the doctors they have, the quality of the pharmacists they have and the nursing staff, and how connected they are and responsive they are to the community is really, really special. And it goes both ways. The community spends a lot of effort sort of helping that, that those health clinics know what, what's important and be well supported and well integrated and trusted in the community. And so they create this really positive feedback loop that I wouldn't say doesn't exist in the United States. There are people are trying this idea of community health centers that are really about the community. And it's not just about, oh, there's a couple doctor offices in my community. I'm going to choose one. It's more like, hey, there's one and it's really local and you know who they are and they take the time to know who you are. And it really creates that deep connection. Because at the end of the day, healthcare it's a very personal thing. Different communities have different challenges, many all kinds of things. Whether it's a community in Costa Rica that's you know in the middle of a banana plantation, or if it's you know in the city, <laughs> totally different. It, it, whether it's you know a wealthy community or a poor community or, or a mix, and like what matters most and what that health clinic needs to focus on and how to provide the best healthcare, they have this deep trust basically built there and this really great working relationship. And then of course those doctors and those health clinics become sort of like. I think like Costa Rica does a good job of making them drive the rest of the health system. So like the rest of the health system listens a lot to what's going on there to decide where to focus resources on, you know, hospitals and more specialty clinics that support those community health work centers. Mm-hmm. When you were introducing yourself, you said that you've had amazing robotics training from Johns Hopkins and from Stanford. So you've had this like very impressive sort of academic foundation but you described some of the projects that you worked on as like ed tech and sports bras, <laughs> like this big range. Was there a moment where you had to find confidence with respect to the decision to enter healthcare, you know, in this really crucial like period, you know, you are delivering life-saving healthcare supplies 
when you have no time to waste, you know, it's not an area where you can make a lot of mistakes, but you didn't have all of the background necessarily. (laughs) That would have been helpful right off the bat. What did you have to tell yourself or what did you have to believe that gave you the confidence to go after it? For me, it's pretty simple, right? Like I get really excited about something once I've got the people who I met who actually have a problem that needs solving and I can know them, Mm. right? That's what gets me fundamentally excited. I think for me, like even my academic education in product design and robotics and stuff, mentally in my head, that's kind of always been a hobby as opposed to a profession. Mm. Like I'm not an early adopter. I I don't buy the newest phone. I want my technology just needs to work. I don't enjoy the things that are kind of flaky and sort of new novel just for technology's sake. And I think that's also been true of the stuff I like doing during the day. It's like, okay, if there's people who really have a problem and I can really get to know them, understand that problem, I want to go solve that problem. I get excited mm-hmm. about it. That's where Zipline really came from. And, and I'll be honest, like, I think if I didn't have that and I knew more mm-hmm. than I did back then about healthcare, I might not even <laughs> consider it because it's, you know, it's one of those things where naivety helped a little bit, right? Like if yes. you knew how hard it was going to be, you might have thought twice <laughs> because, and so, yeah, so really that's what gave confidence is maybe not the right word, but just more that mm-hmm. like a conviction that, Hey, let's go, let's go solve this and, and we'll figure it out as we go. Yeah. To kind of dive into this crazy space. You and your team, your co-founders, y'all are a bunch of nerds. Like <laughs> it's like a very nerdy, you know, very intellectual, hardworking group of people who are going after this really complicated opportunity and succeeding. So there was part of me that was a little surprised to see that Bono joined your board. You know, this is like one of the most famous musicians of all time. But I'm really interested in where you all found common ground and how you drew him in and the impact that he has had on on you and your team and the way that you think about the problem that you're solving. Yeah. I think the core of the answer to your question is fundamentally comes down to this deep value of diversity, right? And I mm. think the sort of approaching the world with this understanding that like, you know, you only understand a little bit of the world and you mm. and you better not assume you understand more than you know, because it'll bite you right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you when you least expect it. And, I, and, and that's, this has been very true for me. I, I've tried many different kind of roles and different things I've done over the years. And, and I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm bad at. And I think that's been a big part of building the team overall is from the leadership team all to the operating teams is finding the right sort of mix of perspectives and experiences and ways of looking at the world and the ways of solving problems and the right diverse backgrounds that, you know, really kind of teach you how to solve problems and approach life challenges, which is sort of how Zipline, we think of Zipline job as a life challenge in a lot of ways, in different ways. And, you know, and, and Bono is somebody who very much brings a very diverse perspective to our mm. board and to our leadership team. He obviously is an artist in a way that none of us are and things like that. And he, but he's also, he also has a gift for helping people understand how to think about changes to healthcare and, and radically reimagining how to do healthcare. And, and, you know, that's just really, really important to Zipline, that mindset and that, and of course there's other, there's other things he brings to Zipline too, that are, you know, we can only dream of in terms of credibility and connections and so on. Yeah. And I think that there's a few thoughts I have, but it's, yeah, it's, there's some there's something really interesting there about sort of how Bono fits in and and how like this has been sort of this really kind of cool journey of meeting really passionate people who really want to so- really make this happen and how necessary it's been <laughs> to have that really diverse group of people come together because the problems we solve are just all over the place. We have to teach people about drones and that drones aren't scary or at least these kinds of drones aren't scary versus other types of drones which admittedly are scary. We have to integrate with health systems and health systems 
we're disruptive, right? That, that, that is not a word any health system has ever celebrated, right? You walk mm-hmm. up to health systems and say, hey, I've got this disruptive technology that's going to, you know, they're just like, wait, disruptive? <laughs> Go away, please. And, you know, how do you work with a health system to reimagine their health, their, how they're going to run their supply chain and how doctors are going to order and a whole bunch of things have to change about how they audit and, and do all this other stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of doing that required to make that happen and a lot of skill sets that all come together in Zipline to make it actually work. I'm really interested in a word that you used, which was passion. You said that the passionate people that come to the table. And it reminded me of something Jay Kreps, the CEO of Confluent, said when he was describing why he started this company. And he said, if you're just sort of out there thinking about being an entrepreneur and it looks all glamorous and (laughs) it's like... (laughs) Do not do it for that reason, (laughs) because they're just like the blood, sweat and tears. It's just so hard. It's so gritty. There's such a scrappy hustle to it. And it's really about the conviction. And another word for that is passion for solving this problem. Like you will not be deterred. And that's what I hear in your voice. And I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit about that, like how important that has been, that, that feeling of just being unstoppable with respect to this particular challenge. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it kind of comes back, it affects Zipline in a bunch of different ways. Some of it's a mindset of just like, hey, we will figure it out, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it might be harder than you think, (laughs) might be more painful than you think. But if you just take that attitude, almost anything in life you can figure out. And like, some of it is awful, right? Some of it is like huge setbacks. Some of it is, some of the places we work in the world, there's very big security challenges, all kinds of things that are very uncomfortable. But if you just take that mindset, like, you know, and you kind of keep moving, moving forward, and of course, you have a team that is very supportive of each other, like you can figure things out. That's one aspect of it. That thing you said about don't get into startups because you think it's glamorous, I fully agree with that. And this is what well, one of our core values of the company is what we call servant leadership, which is this, which is this attitude that most important people in the whole company are the people we serve, right? Our customers. And then the pe- most important people sort of below them on the org chart. So customers at the top of the org chart. Below them on the org chart are all the people in the company who actually interact with those customers every day, right? The people Mm -hmm. sending orders, talking to doctors, talking to patients, working at that level. And then you kind of keep going down, people support them, people support them, all the way down to the CEO at the bottom of the org chart. And that really encapsulates the the anti-glamour, right? Which is that your job as a leader in the company is to support the people to serve the customers. There are no corner offices at Zipline. like executives like the i mean literally i don't think anybody on our leadership team has actually i know this for a fact no one on our leadership team has an office <laughs> like mm-hmm. we all use shared desk space like wherever we find it that's just part of it and no matter what you need to do for your team whether it's take out the garbage or you know what looks like management of like to coach somebody like you're just going to do it and it's, you're not going to sort of say oh that's not my job but like it's not, there's none of that in leadership and there's also none of that all the way to the level of people who support our customers right we want them to know we have their back but they've got to they have to move heaven and earth to make it work for our customers. And some of the times it's challenging. Sometimes, you know, a doctor needs something that we don't have, right? And we got to figure out what to do about that because in a life critical situation, you can't, I mean, I suppose you could, but it feels very unethical to be like, well, we're out of that blood type. Sorry, call try tomorrow. Like, you know, mm-hmm. usually there's something we can do, right? Because we're on paved roads. We're closer to the city. Like we're physically closer to blood banks. We can probably make it happen get the blood and get it in the air and get it to them faster than they could get it for themselves. And so, you know, empowering our team at that level is really, really important. The flip side of servant leadership is what we call extreme responsibility, which means you own something. You know, where you're in the company, you own it, right? <laughs> you're empowered. We put as few guardrails on your job as possible. The opposite of like, when you call customer service to a certain company and someone says, I can't do anything for you, but let me get my manager. And then they say, let me get my manager. Like we do not, 
We don't do that at all. If that ever happened at Zipline, we have failed in our execution because you know this matters. It matters a lot. As you know, one of the communities that we serve is our military community, veterans and military spouses. And some of the ethos that you're talking about, the servant leadership and extreme ownership, we hear a lot about from, from our veterans in particular. So I know that they'll enjoy your comments there. Well, we have phenomenal team members who are veterans from around the world. And a lot of what this value means, you know, they have taught us and it's really powerful. And again, comes back to that diversity that makes Zipline tick. Mm-hmm. And in our experience, we serve veterans for years before we expanded to serve women and then people of color. And it was such a wonderful place to start, partly because of how tight that culture is and how ethical it is and how other oriented and mission oriented it is. And culture is something that you think about a lot. And you've had to be really mindful about it from the beginning because Pre-COVID, you all were working from home, working for remotely, you know, in an extreme sense where you had teammates in Africa, teammates in California as a really small brand new startup. And part of what kept that together and kept it possible was this focus on culture. Will you tell us a little bit more about your mindset and some of the insights that you've had there? Yeah, this is a, a life lesson that I learned very much the hard way. When, uh-huh. I, when I was younger... <laughs> The first time I ever built a big team, I had the mindset that when everybody said someone said culture, I was like, oh, Silicon Valley fluff word, get out of here. Right. Like, that can't be a thing. That team got to about, 50, about around 60 people and it wasn't working very well. That's all of a sudden like the bit flipped. I was like, holy smokes, like the trust isn't here. Like our, our sort of habits around how to make decisions and empower and all these things weren't there. I went a hard other direction and spent a lot of time really trying to understand how the best companies in the world really do that and how the best cultures in the world really work. Yeah, this is just really, really fundamental to Zipline. And, and like that extreme ownership piece, the perfect example of that, when we go to a new country, there's a whole lot we have to do, right? We have to hire and build, we have to hire a leadership team in that country, we have to build an operations team in that country, we have to find the sites that we're going to operate from and procure the land and get it set up on the land and get all the infrastructure in place, internet power and gas tanks for backup and all this kind of stuff in place. Yeah, and I still remember the first time this happened, right? Like, you know, one of our, basically someone who came in as an intern and like was two years into Zipline at that point, we said, hey, we need you to get, get on a plane to Rwanda. We need you to find our first distribution center location. And the only way someone can do that is if they have a, first of all, they have to be trusted. They have to know you have, you have their back and they have to have a lot of autonomy, right? When you're on the ground in a place like that, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot you're going to learn, right? There's, there's a lot you don't know. And if you're running decisions back to, Headquarters in California, you know, time shifted by 24 hours. Good luck. <laughs> and these little things just go so far. You know, that, that same person, by the way, recently just stood up Japan for us. Well, there's so many stories like that of people just who are, you know, when you build that culture where there's all that trust and people learn how to handle all that responsibility and, they, and then they take, you know, they, they really embrace their kind of creativity to solve problems. It's just incredibly powerful, right? Because we're 700 people at Zipline now about 400 in operations. And everyone I meet in the company has this mindset. In a traditional hierarchical org where one person is you know, making big decisions and the rest is kind of follow, right? Like I think I, I firmly believe we're like 700 times more powerful than, than mm-hmm. that traditional org is because of this culture. Keenan, you, as you were telling that story, you were describing that your shift in mindset around culture, which you said started with thinking that this was like a fluffy California, like Silicon Valley <laughs> concept, and then realizing how core it is to the health of your business. 
And it's related to values. You all, over time, decided to start conducting a values interview, and that's now yeah. part of your hiring process. Can you talk to us about why you do that and some of the insights that you glean from it? Yeah. And when we say values, of course, we mean different things. There's lots that kind of go into making up the values that tie us together in a team like this. And so if you go to our website, you'll see some core values. But the value I'm going to talk about right now is a, little bit, is a little bit more meta than those. And this is a value we've learned to, the really importance of interviewing for, which is basically, it's a little hard to describe. It's basically like, what are you like when shit gets tough? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, what do you like when that happens? I explain to people in a few different ways. Well, one is a really relatable one. I think we've all gone on vacations with friends and some of those vacations are great and some aren't great. And what usually what defines the difference is like, are those friends fun when the plans go off the rails and you just have the time of your life? When that, whatever little plan goes off the rails, like people are stressed out and like, oh, you got need some space from each other, <laughs> right? And we're looking for people in that first category. People who, when things get hard, they're going to band together and really act as a team and support each other and get through it and have a ton of fun doing it. Like those are the people who that's really what makes up Zipline because we're doing something new like this. It's a whole lot of challenges. There's very few times you're like, oh, this is an easy day. Like, you know, usually it's challenging. And so making sure we hire people who really love that, you know, and thrive when things get hard has been really important. And so this is something we really intentionally interview for because, well, otherwise it's really, you know, if you don't really go deep there into someone's background and what they've done in their, in their personal life or professional life, you know, and show that you are someone who can thrive and have fun in hard situations, well, then you won't be a great teammate. And is this related to your focus on trust? It's related to trust and sort of like, <laughs> I think the it's related to trust and realizing over time how hard Zipline would be to build versus how, thought we, how hard we thought uh, it would be, if that makes sense, right? Here's a little fun story. So we were about to launch in Costa Rica. That was going to be our first country. We had everything going. It was going great. Rwanda was sort of second on deck to be the second customer, but the contract and all the regulatory stuff in Costa Rica had gone much faster until it didn't. It got stuck in the mud. We realized we had to go back a year in the process and start over. And Costa Rica wanted us to deliver pharmaceuticals. We went to Rwanda and said, hey, if you want to be first, you can be first now. And they said, yes, absolutely. Let's go. But we were starting with blood. And at that time, we knew nothing about blood. And I still remember we walk into a meeting with someone from the public health system there, and they're like, "So cool. So how do you affect the storage life of blood?" I'm like, "What do you mean? How do you? What, what do you mean?" <laughs> and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, mechanical agitation of blood can reduce its life, right? You, you, the shelf life can go from forty days to like two days." Good question. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Started. And, you know, this is the perfect example of a challenge, right? We had very little time to do this back then. We were no team to work on this. And just started picking up the phone and calling everybody who we could find in the world who had anything resembling the word like blood handling transport expert and asking them like, so what is this? What are the problems? Like, how does this work? Within like three weeks, this awesome professor at Emory University was helping us out, had gotten hundreds of grad students to volunteer to, to donate blood. And they were dropping blood in our packages off of the top of the college building at Emory University and testing that blood to see you know, how well it held up. It was really important because, well, first of all, we were actually, when they first said that, we're like, uh-oh, <laughs> like this may not work for blood because we, you know, it's, a plane flies, it launches very quickly, it bounces into turbulence and, and so on. So we, we had no idea if, if that would reduce, basically, if it, what happens is the blood cells have a survival, basically a protection, sort of like clotting where the blood cells kill themselves if you agitate them too much. So, but you get to a whole unit of blood and then transfuse it, it's very dangerous. And so we had no idea if our processes would trigger this in blood and Turns out they don't, but it took some time to figure that out and, and a whole lot of scramble. 
it's a really wonderful intersection of the conviction that you all had, the trust that you had with with yourselves and, and with your community. But it also strikes me, your early customers are your heroes, right? As you said, they had no business choosing you guys, you know, to do this thing, like with no experience. But they also said, we're going to jump in with both feet. You know, do you think about that? Like your customers as heroes in this story of Zipline. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, like without them and their commitment and their support mm. and their patience and all the, like literally there's no possible way we exist, right? Like, mm. and there's, in our early, the early customers who take those bigger bets on us, yes. who took the bigger bets on us, like there's no way we would have gotten to where we are today without them. There's just no way, right? Like there's, mm. that's the only path to figuring this stuff out and getting enough credibility that you can keep going as a company. It cuts both ways. What I mean by that is like, well, it's, 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 I still remember when, when we were trying to get our first system ready to operate in Rwanda, you know, as you can imagine, you know, real big surprise coming, like we weren't on time. It took us longer to get the system to the point where we thought it was ready to start serving that first customer than we had planned, you know, big surprise, right? So, but I still remember that one of the deputies and to the minister of health, like every week or two, she'd be like, how's it going? And here's some photos of some people who like really would have benefited from your service working and really freaking intense, as you can imagine, but also like it's one of those things where it, it's it's a reminder how how much they were invested in us. Mm. And to be clear, not only that, but when I talk about value to the zipline, you, mm. you can imagine how focusing that was. There was no wasted effort, no wasted time. You know, a lot of these technologically complicated projects, they waste a lot of time doing things that aren't actually fundamentally important to the customer. But when you have mm-hmm. a customer said doing that to you, like nothing you know that's fluff in your design or unnecessary in your development is being done you're doing exactly what you believe you absolutely have to do and that's it and that kind of focus is incredibly powerful and that kind of empowering the team with that kind of drive to to cut things that don't really matter yeah i mean like again yeah i don't, I don't think we'd be here as a company without that mm. so zipline is just on such an amazing trajectory We've talked about the incredible pace of growth. You all, I think, are making deliveries now every four minutes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deliveries of products that save people's lives and enable them to live healthier lives. You have Bono on your board. You've raised a bunch of money. Like, it's just an amazing story. And you and your team are, of course, at the center of it. And it's given you a lot of insight into startups and early stage companies. And you found over time that your friends are actually coming to you saying, hey, how do I evaluate this, you know, this little operation that's in somebody's garage? Like, how do I think about whether or not I should join this team? Can you talk to us about some of the advice that you give to those close to you as they're thinking about this type of career transition. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I I think this is incredibly important because I think when you join a startup, you really have to think of it like the decision. It's, you know, half of it is a job decision, which hopefully for you involves passion and what what you really care about. And the other half of it's an investment decision because a a chunk of your conversation is going to, you know, a large chunk of your conversation, uh, if that company, if your company does well, is going to be in the equity in that company and your ownership in that company. And yeah, a lot of people don't really think about that second category very much and sort of take the time to kind of get their head around it and get excited about it and comfortable with it. 
I think evaluating a startup, you know, as someone thinking of joining a startup, it really comes down to a couple of things. First, real simple, just people, right? Mm-hmm. Get to know those people, research the people, make sure research the leaders and the founders, you know, talk to them, ask them questions, really like sort of like our values interview, make sure they're people you believe will get through hard problems and that you will have fun working with them to get through hard problems, right? Because there will be big challenges. And if the founders are going to be assholes during hard challenges, like you're not, mm-hmm. that company is not likely to survive, right? Like, so really start with the people. And also during the interview process, that's like a pretty easy time to get to know where the people are. After the interview process, like, and you hopefully have some opportunity to kind of get to know the company a bit better, you really understand what that company really wants to do. And, and I look, I look for two things simultaneously. One is focus, right? Startups have to have a focus. And ideally that like the focus sort of, as you can tell where I come from, it's really focuses customers. They have real human beings who want that thing desperately. And that all that company can talk about is those people and how they're going to get it done. Because focus is so, so, so important. If the company's like, oh yeah, we're going to change the world in this amorphous way. And and the, you know, we don't really have customers yet because the technology is ready. Anything like that, run for the hills, <laughs> in, my, mm-hmm. in my experience. You want them to be super focused on something that they can explain to you why it matters, who it matters. Ideally, they're naming customers by name of like, oh, yeah, I was with the customers yesterday, and this is what happened, and this is what we learned, and this has focused us more on what, on what matters for the product and stuff. And focus both from you know customers and a market. If someone's trying to build something they think is going to work for 20 different people doing 20 different things, this is not going to happen. <laughs> Nothing new works that way in my experience. And so that, that kind of focus on market and focus on real human customers and that passion for focus is that's sort of the second thing I look for. And then the third thing I look for is sort of like, you know, it's kind of this, the, like, do they have a, like a reasonable idea of how to build this company? Right? Mm-hmm. right? Do they have a reasonable idea of like, where are they going to go? And it shouldn't be overly complicated. They should be able to explain it to you even if you don't have a business background or something. Like, what are the steps they're going to take? What does the funding look like to get there? What does that look in broad strokes, right? And by the way, it's actually good when you, if you're somebody who doesn't come from that world and you ask that question and you can understand it, that's a great sign, mm-hmm. right? That means the person has a vision and they can communicate it well enough that they're probably going to be able to communicate it to customers and investors and other people really well. If they're super wonky and you can, they can't explain it to you at all, Another sign that you might not have the right leaders in that company. <laughs> you might want to keep looking for other options. Uh, I find that also to be really a good indicator as you ask about what is their kind of path as a company to beat the viability. Super helpful to hear your perspective on that, Keenan, and thank you for sharing. And you're running a company that's a good example of this where startups are risky, of course. And part of that risk-reward calculus is that if they are successful, they have an outsized ability to create wealth. And of course, that can impact financial wellness across generations. Absolutely. And within that context, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on how important it is, even for startups, to recruit diverse talent. Within Breakline, we have amazing partners like Google and Facebook, big corporations. But we also have 12-person startups hiring folks from us, and we're so grateful for that partnership. And I think that you can't be too early to be mindful about how you build your team and to make sure that your team is representative of our society. And I know you've thought about that too. Will you share some of those thoughts here? Yeah. As a company or as a team, obviously, like the company is really just a team of people, right? As a team of any group of people... You're just a sum of your parts. And the sum of your parts are the the value of that sum of parts really comes down to diversity, right? You have five people who have the same experience and the same skill set. It's not that much more valuable having one of those people. (laughs) And in terms of the perspective they're going to bring to the table, the ideas they're going to bring to the table, the way they're going to 
approach problem solving, the insights that they're going to develop when they're faced with problems. Um, when I think about diversity, this is a fundamental way to explain this value to someone who's building a team, which is, of course, the fun, fundamentally another way of describing a company. And, and so you have to focus on that because it's the worst thing you can do. I see this all the time, right? These highly sort of monoculture teams in startups where they're basically just like echo chambers of bad ideas. You need people who come from a different perspective. You people are going to challenge each other and you need that for bazillions of reasons. If you can't, if you don't, if you don't have those debates internally, you will never sell people externally because externally the diversity is way more than internal, right? Of people you have to bring along and sell and make work for you. You're going to get stuck on stupid things, right? Because if you think a certain way, the way you think about the future will be monolithic and only, you only think of one future as opposed to the gazillions of futures that could happen depending on your decisions. So you're really only as valuable as the diversity of your parts, right? And then diversity in, in all senses, diversity in terms of background, education, the founding member of a Rwandan team, this amazing, literal, I mean, in my perspective, Rwandan kid, just unbelievably brilliant and helped us think about problems we were thinking about and like helped us helped explain why thought things we thought were like the most important problems were not problems at all. And how these other things that were really important. And he brought this perspective that we just did not have in the company. His background completely different than ours. I mean, like you want night and day. This is a genocide survivor. Both of his parents were killed, raised by his grandmother. We found him because we were in these hospitals and we were looking for the first person to hire to help us basically literally do the first deliveries for, for them. And we were looking for someone who could, back then our equipment was not very reliable. So we did someone who could really help us keep our stuff working. We went to four or five hospitals and they all mentioned the same name of like, oh, there's this kid who you call when like your maintenance techs can't fix a piece of medical equipment and he'll just fix it. And of course, not only could he do this job we needed in a way none of us could have, but his perspective on the health system was unlike any of ours because he spent all his whole career inside, like literally behind the scenes of this health system across the board, had the trust of all these leaders who literally had him on speed dial and like expensive equipment stopped working and just amazing. I don't think his perspective or his background was similar to anybody in the company at that time at all. And it was a total game changer. And I think mm. and it helped us move so much faster as a company. That's just one example of, of all the amazing people at ZipLine who have helped us we'll get where we are. I think a lot about how important it is to value performance over pedigree. And that yeah. young man that you just talked about, what a great example of that. You know, someone who's just brilliant in a completely different way. Keenan Weirbeck, what a treat to interview you. Thank you so much for the time. This has been fabulous. And I want to also just thank you for investing your time, your talent, your brilliance in a problem for humanity. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.